Hey everyone, Tim K here to talk to you about a special collaboration that we have. I don't even know if it's fair to call it a collaboration because look, they did all the work. So <laughs> I'm very thankful to our friends at Trinidad Three Jeans. Uh, wow. One of the best designers in the world. Trinidad Garcia. We just had him on the podcast uh, for Out of Uniform, our collaboration with NPR and Texas Public Radio. So if you listen to his podcast, you'll know how incredible of a guy he is and what a talented designer he is. Listen, I've owned Diesel. I've owned Joe's. I've owned Citizens, Seven for Mankind. I've had all the nice jeans. These jeans are incredible, and a portion of the proceeds goes to the Veterans Project. So when it comes down to attention to detail, the seams, the threading, if you know what to look for on a pair of jeans, you can just tell that these jeans will last you forever. It's it's just every piece is beautifully made, and I can't speak highly enough of what they're doing. So it was imperative that we teamed up with them. Now, it's a heritage. This particular pair of jeans is a heritage-derived classic look with a modern fit, comfortable stretch, and a durable and clean design. It's available in the Boyer Athletic Straight Fit, named after our good friend, Nate Boyer. These are each handcrafted in their downtown Los Angeles Los Angeles workshop. So it's a 33-inch inseam is the standard inseam, 15-inch leg opening, 24-inch thigh, 10.5-inch front rise, 15-inch back rise. For those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, go to the website, trinidad3.com. It's 92% cotton. This is probably the most important part, and 8% stretch. So comfortable. You're going to love these jeans, I promise. So head over to Trinidad3.com to check out our new collaboration with Trinidad 3 Jeans. Terry Hewen doesn't speak all that much, but then again, you don't need to say a whole lot when your record speaks for itself. Mention Terry's name around the Naval Special Warfare community and it elicits a certain reaction that would be best be characterized as reverential. A career that spanned almost three decades, stapled by two of our most vital missions in the GWAT, should garner that reaction. But to imagine the man as one of our most elite becomes much easier when you spent time around the community. There is the saying, watch out for the quiet guy in the room. He's the most dangerous. If you've been around those who served at the tip of the spear, you will quickly find the statement almost always holds true. There is, after all, a reason they are called quiet professionals. Hewen is a representative of elite class of warfighter that carries this mantle with the greatest measure of solemnity. He is empathetic, caring, and kind to a degree that harkens back to the days of the men who served as our greatest generation. Warfighters that didn't desire accolades or awards. Their lives and integrity-fueled approaches to every facet demanded respect. You don't need to say much when you carry that kind of weight with you. When Terry speaks, it's always important. When Terry speaks, everyone else listens. Those words are met with open ears because they carry that aforementioned weight. Jessica Lynch. Captain Phillips. Just throw those missions' names into a browser search and you will end up with thousands of links to stories of titans who stood ready to protect and rescue those in dire straits. The men who stood ready at the gate, unquestionably open to the idea that they might not see another sunrise. 
Men like Hewan are what makes this nation the superpower and emblem of safety for so long. Without those men, our everyday freedoms die swiftly. Those men, the silent professionals. Terry Hewan embodies that mantra, not just then, but now. He lives a life of service to the consistency of his actions. Pay close attention as you listen. Pay. Those words are wisdom. They are powerful. They're the words of a man who stood ready as our most elite. 26 years in service. Trips to the darkest corners of our known world into the realm of the most evil. His light illuminated those corners as he protected all that we hold dear. The protector. Terry Hewan is that. The Veterans Project is a comprehensive essay capturing the legacies of our warfighters, caregivers, and civilians who have stepped forward in defense of our patriotic principles in an effort to capture their stories and to never forget the staggering sacrifices of our nation's finest. This is the Veterans Project Podcast, where our legacies are the mission. Here's your host, Tim Kay. Well, welcome to the Veterans Project Podcast. My name is Tim Kay. I'll be your host as always. Today we got with me, I say a special guest, but I say that every time, so you're not that, you're not that special. Not, <laughs> I definitely don't think I'm very special. <laughs> Terry Huyen, uh, retired, retired yes. Navy SEAL. Yes, I am. Uh, yeah, so Terry Huyen and... Awesome job on getting a name right. Yeah, I got it right, but I asked you like five times before the <laughs> yeah, podcast. Yeah, so. leading into it. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, retired did uh, almost thirty years, twenty six and some change. Decades. Yeah. Wow. I mean, what's that like? You know, do you, do you think about it now in the span of your life and just think, I spent more of my time in the Navy than and, I did in the rest of my life. Yes, exactly. And it's, I, I usually think of it more in the context of my entire adult life up until retirement was in the service yeah, running around doing deployments and everything else. So when I, as I think about my identity, which we'll probably get into later, is like, it's hard to give up that because that's really, that's all I ever was until this, you know, the next chapter that we're into now. But yeah, it's crazy. I'm glad you brought that up because we're constantly talking about that in the midst of the project. What is it that, you know, that guys really struggle with when they get out, when they're transitioning? We talk about that all the time. Loss of purpose. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, and it's probably the same with just about everybody. That loss of purpose going from every single day that I wake up, my nation needs me to do my job. My teammates need me to do my job. My family needs me to do my job. My neighbors need me to, to be there to protect and defend what, what they stand for. And like the day that you hang that up and it's not there, you don't get the phone calls, you don't get the emails, you don't get you see the news cycles and what's going on and you still understand what's going on, but you're gone. You're off that train. It's for me, that was the hardest struggle is that redefining what purpose is next and how do I fit into that? And how do I continue to be beneficial, not just to my family and my community, but for myself, you know, keep myself on the tracks. That was, that was huge. That was, that was the hardest part by, by sure. I don't want to lose that point and go yeah. back yeah. necessarily right away because that's such an important thing. What was that like? Can you describe that feeling of hanging it up? You're married. You had kids, right? Mm -hmm. What was the feeling of hanging it up? Did you think it would shock you as much as it did? No, absolutely not. And I, I thought I was, well, I, 
I'll say I was probably better prepared than most veterans getting out because in the special operations community, you have a lot more resources. There's more programs out there on the nonprofit and civilian side catered towards us because as bad as it is, we were kind of the, the picture of the GWAT for forever, right? I mean, the grunt Marines, the regular soldiers, they all paid the ultimate price and, and worked their ass off just like we did. But we were sexy. We were flashing a pan. So there was more people willing to help us in that transition. So I considered myself, I thought I was ready. You know, I, I put on E9, you know, left the command, went and did a, a, quote, training job, part of our BUDS pipeline, running that for three years. I finished my degree. I you know, got all my medical stuff right. I, I was physically and mentally, I thought I was in great shape for transition. I had a plan. I'm like, hey, I went through these programs and identified that there's no way in hell I'm going to fit in a nine-to-five job. I cannot sit in a desk. I cannot work for somebody else. Well, I'm with you. Not that I can't work for somebody else, but but that fact that I have to ask for time off, was <laughs> it just did not go. Because for me, one of the biggest issues I had, well, I would say one of the, str- the hardest things I had is never controlling my time or my schedule. You know, granted, we were very good at giving guys time off when they needed it. Or if my, you know, like when my daughters were, were born, I was able to train, trade trade deployments and trade trips with guys to the work still got done, but I had family time. You know, we were very good at taking care of the family, making sure the family was, was taken care of, but still, I don't, I didn't control it. I still had to ask for days off. I still had to schedule family time and family vacation around what the job was. So that was hard to the fact that like, I am not going to sit down a nine to five job. I'm not going to be lashed to something that I have to ask permission to go do something fun. Mm. So when all that drops off, we were talking about transition. Oh, yeah. So I already got sidetracked. Yeah, no, it's okay. Yeah. It's perfect. You got into a good subject that I want to tackle later as well. So that's important, you know. Um, so you retire E9. So Master Chief? Yes. Just like Halo. <laughs> <laughs> I had to say that. I hear Master Chief. I just got to say I know. That. <laughs> and, and that did come up in some cartoons for my car- <laughs> prep students, which was fun. I, yeah, They liked it, and I, I had fun with it. I didn't. Yeah, you know, we made him do push-ups. But yeah, of course it, you have It was to. all in fun. It yeah. was all good stuff. But yeah. To this day, I still don't get the Navy ranks. I mean, it's it's tough on everybody <laughs> that's outside the Navy. We're like, oh, yeah. that's so much. Yeah. Commodore, too, and all that. Um, you, you, as you're transitioning, though, you're getting out. You said that was more shocking than you thought it would be. Oh, absolutely. What, what was that feeling? Not, ju- like? and not just for me, for, you know, for, for my wife and, and kids, too. So as I was getting out, I'm like, hey, I'm going to be the perfect dad. You know, I'm not going to do anything for like six months. I'm not going to do jobs. I'm not going to travel outside of some hunting trips. I'm just going to be here. I'm going to be Mr. Dad. And after a couple months of that, <clears throat> I quickly realized and my wife quickly let me know that that is screwing with the, the schedule that she had programmed that she had built over the last you know 20 years and, and run around together and with the kids and everything else. So it was, uh, it was kind of a growth period of trying to find that balance of okay, now my nation doesn't need me. How can I still be beneficial but not be home all the time, you know, to give her her, her freedom and her space? So it was, it was tough to try to figure out that aspect of it. Yeah. You're in a Tier 1 space. Yes. You're in a yeah. um, national mission force. That's okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, you're in a unit like that, operating at that level and that capacity, hitting the door that hard every day with the sledgehammer, mm-hmm. right? Pre- yeah. Precision sledgehammer. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and you're, you're doing that every day, and then all of a sudden that stops. Yes. So that shock and that awe, 
probably has to be somewhat mind blowing. Yeah, and you know, I thought I'd built my off ramp correctly because, and, and personally, I was fine. You know, like as you as you build up in rank and, and time in the service and, and around the community, it's not hard to see the younger guys stepping up and outpacing you on target. And they know their skills, they know what they're doing, they know how to do the job. So personally, I was fine. Once it came time to hang up the body armor, hang up the rifle, and step into more of a like a mentoring mentoring role, especially in my time at prep, like I'm here to mentor the next generation. I thought that off ramp was was well designed and well built. So three years slow down, like my first month or so of the prep, I was still working twelve and fourteen hour days just because I didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. You know, I would show up still there just stay all day just because i wasn't used to going home early so that yeah to me i thought i thought i'd done it right so even with that even with that three month off ramp from you know a thousand miles an hour every single day race car in red to to actually hanging up and signing my my dd214 and saying i am completely done with the military and the military is completely done with me was still a shock was there was there a breaking point for you in your relationship with your wife where you you two were really struggling with that fact? Your wife was really struggling with you know you in transition. Not saying breaking necessarily, but just a mm-hmm. moment where she had to have a sit down talk with you. Like this is really hard on me. Yes, yeah, and that was yeah. that was probably so. I retired in July, so probably September ish, mm-hmm. yeah, September ish, October maybe. That was that point where, all right, Dad. Honey, everything else that stop fucking with our shit. You know, I love it. I, I we, you know, we love the the passions you have for the family, but it's somewhat mis- misplaced, right? Because now Dad's stepping back in and wants to be the boss or the authoritarian Figure. for when the, when the when the kids are misbehaving and needing to be disciplined. And and what I what I wanted to have kind of left and right limits for the kids were probably a lot tighter than what what the wife had which is fine because that's you know that's that's the mother figure that's been there for their entire life now dad's stepping in and it was it got heated on on several subjects and to the point where it wasn't like break the marriage kind of stuff but it was like personality conflicts like hey we've been together for 20 plus years but we've never been like this Mm. like this tight together ever in our relationship yeah i met her when i was 20 early 20s and it SEAL Team 4 back in 95. Wow. And now it's 2018, and we're both in our 40s, and that's our first time. We're like day-to-day. We're every single day we're here. You probably feel like in some points, like, who is that person? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, like the little stuff that, like the little pet peeves you see in your relationship that you just kind of let go. You're like, oh, it's like, you know, whatever. It bad, those things add up when it's every single day. It's like <laughs> yeah. this little thing, then this little thing, and then it just keeps building on each other until it's frustrating and, and we're both angry angry at each other for no real reason yeah. other than that we're trying to really relearn how to how to be a couple, how to right. how to live together. So I'm gonna guess that you didn't go and then start a company with her. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, and yeah, it's funny because even like, you know, I'll ask her I don't even ask her to help anything. She offers every now and then, but she also knows that she doesn't want to get involved with this, right? Like any of the side stuff I've going on with, you know, the leadership training or the, the outdoor stuff or, or even the coaching I do. She helped with the coaching with the kids because our daughter swims. So 
one of my one of my extracurricular activities is, is coaching kids and athletes. Mm. So she'll help with that, with the organizing stuff and getting messages out to parents and stuff. Because I'm still terrible at paperwork and emails because I hate it, absolutely hate it. <laughs> Me too. So yeah. she helps with that aspect. But <clears throat> once it comes into dealing with contracts and people and, and the money stuff, she's fine with just, I don't want nothing to do with that. She's a realtor on the side, so she's got her 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 thing on the side to do. Yeah, and work side, we're we're essentially split. Yeah, I hear yeah. that. Let's go back. Yes, we <laughs> down more rabbit holes. Yeah, no, I'm glad we did though. That was important to talk about. And purpose and transition is something that's so prevalent in this community. We talk about it all the time, but it's important to have elite-minded, elite-thinking people that have worked at the level that you have talk about those things mm-hmm. because people in this community need to hear that. It's not just you. It's not just you that feels that loss of purpose. I felt it. I oh, yeah. Everyone I know has felt it at some point in time. So it's a very important discussion. Um, I'm yeah. glad we had it. But I think the identity piece on there, too. Like yes. Not just veterans, but yeah. first responders when they are a law enforcement op- op- officer. Man, I'm just stumbling. <laughs> Good thing we can, we can edit, we can edit this, that yeah. crap out. Good, but yeah, you, know, you have the law enforcement officer or a business professional that changes careers, or professional athlete that now I'm not a professional athlete anymore. Yeah. It's still that abrupt change. That's a struggle for everybody. Mentally. That, that's a real thing too. What Absolutely. you just mentioned about professional athletes. Yeah. You know, I know several organizations that now tie those two together: veterans mm-hmm. and professional athletes. Yeah. Uh, so that that's interesting. I think everybody goes through some transition and trauma in their life. Yeah. And what what is one person's trauma is not another person's trauma. Now your trauma might be greater because you've you know been on the side of a mountain in Afghanistan and watched your friends die. Uh, or in the streets of Iraq, kicking down doors, watch your buddies die. Or your trauma might be the loss of a marriage or loss of a child, or mm-hmm. you know, which I can't imagine. So trauma is, I think, exists for everyone. Absolutely. Um, but that's why it's so the identity piece of that is so important and getting past that. You know? Yeah, being able to see the bigger picture and like even what I, what I do now professionally, like yes, I'm a seal and I I, I validate what I say and why I'm doing things the way I do things with, because this is what I did for 30 years or 26 years is that validates the message I'm carrying across, but that's, I don't walk in and say, Hey, I've got to try it. So listen to what I do. (laughs) Like that's, I don't don't get, I don't get picked up on or nobody's ever done that before. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not going to throw a book, try it on a book and sell it and be a millionaire. (laughs) But I do, I do use that because that's, really who i am again my adult life was this so as a validation metric i still use it but it's not the identity anymore and and it's so easy to get tied into that i imagine i mean i imagine you see you know again not throwing stones of course but i imagine you see guys get tied up in that and as they get out you've been an elite force at the the nfl the super bowl of Mm -hmm. what you do and then to think of taking off that cloak or that garb as a part of your identity and then donning something else and yes. becoming that and like thinking to yourself as you water your yard at 6 a.m. and your neighbor <laughs> runs by and, th- you know, and the paper boy misses your house, you know, with the paper <laughs> and hits your car. Yeah. You're like thinking to yourself, what happened? You know? Yeah. How did I get here? How did I get here? I was yeah. so cool at one point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that would affect you. And you could do the same thing for a professional athlete. You can imagine that. Like, well, just like just yesterday, we were up on, you know, we're out here in West Texas. We're up on a range. And for 20 years, I'm a sniper. Mm-hmm. We go to the range in 500 yards. I can't hit the goddamn target. 
And I'm like, what in the hell? What? I know better. Yeah. And I was just staring at the rifle trying to figure out. And granted, we only had a couple hours of sleep, so my brain yeah, wasn't yeah. quite working as well. I'm like, you got to be shitting me. I've got <laughs> I got Tim here. I've got some other guys here. They're just looking at me, kind of snickering like, oh, really? This is this is the guy that's going to teach us something? To be clear, I did not snicker because <laughs> I'm still afraid. Uh, but I just, it yeah. is kind of funny to think about like being on one of the most elite forces as an extremely elite sniper, long distance shooter right there. Yeah. And then 500 yards being like, this is going to take me a while to tell it. I'm looking at it like, yeah. all right, to myself, like I should do, which I know better, is mm-hmm. just go back to square one. All right, something's wrong rebuild the foundation and go from there yeah but it i didn't but you're I, really thinking i was just trying to 500 yards i was trying to half-ass i'm like well this yeah. maybe it's this maybe it's this. and then then i'm second guessing what i put in the computer like god damn okay <laughs> after a handful of shots i'm like all right let's go back to 100 yeah. let's do it the right way yeah yeah all right now really going back okay <laughs> damn these, these <laughs> rabbit holes to, no i love yeah. it i mean yeah. people are gonna dig this for sure the, the conversational aspect of this is important so Going back, you grew up in Indiana, right? Yes. Yep. Okay. Midwest boy. Midwest boy. Uh, my dad as well. You. What did you like? What do you remember about growing up as a youth in Indiana, and what kind of added up in your life and culminated in you joining the United States Navy and then becoming a SEAL? What What was it about growing up in that environment and your parents and how they raised you? Uh, I would think it's probably that, that same small town aspect that a lot of people have. You know, there's expectations. You know, my dad came from a very large family, all farmers, Catholic family. There, so there's certain expectations of the family that you just did. Yeah. Like when your parents asked you to do the job, you did the job. There was there was no talk back and half-ass the job. You just did it. So I think them building that foundation into into me with that work ethic and accountability to make sure that we get the job done. And it's a small town. There's no hiding in a small town. Uh, for everybody that's from the small towns, is, you know, if I'm 15 and I'm running around town screwing off and acting like a jackass, my dad's going to hear about it. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, there's, there's no hiding there. So I think that accountability helped into that. And as I progressed through my through my teens, I kind of got in more into the outdoors. You know, I grew up swimming, so I was very comfortable in the water. Decent athlete, I guess you would say. Not a very decent student. I blame what? The, yeah, I, I blame <laughs> it, the. Uh, I can't blame the teachers. They 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 knew better, but it just wasn't engaged with with academics. Did school. you feel like you had some ADD there? Like you, were, I mean, they I, call it ADD, but I don't you know. know if what it is. So like math, like I had a really good math teacher for for some of my classes, like algebra and everything else, and and that interests me extremely, mm-hmm. and I did well in there. In other subjects, I just wasn't interested in. I didn't do very good, so. Being growing up in the outdoors in a farming community, you know, our, our farmers, I'm used to being outside. I'm comfortable in the water. I knew I was not nearly mature enough to, to join, you know, go to college. Yeah. I'm like, this is just going to be a waste of time, waste of money. I'm not going to, I'm not going to get anything out of it myself if I even finish it. So my other options were stay in town. I mean, I was, I, I was a Mason at that point, helping uh, work for a masonry company, laying bricks and building buildings. I could do that. But then looking at the people that have never left the town, I'm like, why? In my head, to myself, I'm like, I've got to challenge myself to do something else, expand my network or my horizons a little bit, and just see what else is out there. Because you can always go home, right? Yeah. Especially as an 18-year-old. I mean, you can always go home. 
So college is out. Didn't want to stay there and work. So really, my only other option, at least I, the way I looked at it, was join the military. Mm. So I, <clears throat> the only thing in the military that I was aware of, well, I knew the Army and the, and the Navy. Being a water guy, I wanted to go learn how to scuba dive. Okay. Okay. Navy's got divers. Nobody else has divers. I'm going to go talk to the recruiter, join the Navy, learn how to scuba dive, and, and go have fun. He saw that like a mile away walking in there. So I walk in and, you know, he get you know, typical recruiter duty. <laughs> How you doing? What you doing? What, what, what are your pastimes? You know, all this stuff. And he so he shows me a picture on the, on the wall, you know, the classic Navy SEAL picture. The guys coming out of the water, the big mustache, jumping out of the airplanes in the corner. Tom Selleck. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so he shows me that. It's like, well, what about this? You like guns? You like to hunt? You like adventure? I'm like, well, hell yeah, sign me up, which he did. But what he did not tell me was, 80 to 85 percent of people that sign up never make it through which means you have to go to the regular navy and you can't be a diver or anything else and the fact that like how much of a grinder how hard buds really was yeah so i was a complete noob you know this is pre-al gore inventing the internet it was <laughs> there may have been books in the library about seals but i never i never had an interest to go see what it was yeah so i signed the papers and, and went in and that reality check of when you show up and you have 200 students wet and sandy and you know, working her ass off, grinding and chafed from mm. waist down on, on the sand. And that reality check kind of smacks you in the face of, oh, shit, like whatever I signed is real. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up about 85% not making it through. Yeah. Probably even higher than that. But you you were talking about that. I was just th- referencing back and thinking about <laughs> Micah Fink, who was on an yeah. earlier episode. He was like, I'm fully convinced that the Navy like uses that whole oh, it's pump absolutely. up video. It it's absolutely like does. the submarine painters. Yes. <laughs> like we need more Navy but we need we need more destroyer interior painters. <laughs> yes. I need more people to chip the paint. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean it's it's a good investment for the Navy side, like marketing, yeah. like, oh, we're gonna market to these athletes that are in shape. They're smart kids. You yeah. know, they, they score well in their ASVAB. We're going to bring them in under this, knowing that 80% of them are going to come to the Navy and we're going to have really good sailors. Right. You know, of those 80%, you'll probably you're still going to have some disgruntled guys that you know, mess up or they don't follow through with the work, but you're generally going to get some pretty good sailors out of it. That's genius, actually. Oh, hell yeah. I think about it, yeah. I'd do the same thing. Yeah. I was, I was, <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's going to make it. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think I invited you on a deer hunt? You know? <laughs> All right, Tim's a terrible deer hunter, but he's going to come. Let's get that out of the way, first of all. That's true. <laughs> but he's going to come and we're going to have a good time. Yeah, we're going to have a good time, and yeah. we have. Uh, so you get to Buds, right? And that, mm. is that the first, that's that first phase, right? Yeah. Can you explain what Buds is for those those yeah. listeners that the, won't know? For the handful of people that haven't Googled it yet? Yeah, yeah. yeah so, so Buds is our basic underwater demolition seal training. So yeah. it's our training pipeline for new students or new candidates into the military that, that eventually want to become a SEAL. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like our selection or our training process. And in the early 90s, when I went through, it was essentially three phases. We had a, we had a fourth phase. We call it fourth phase. It was kind of like pre-training as guys filter in, class up, or they're hurt. They're kind of in this fourth phase kind of holding pen. But traditionally, you have the first three phases or the three phases. First phase is the classic, just beat your ass, grind you in the ground, physically and mentally just beat you down and see what you have which is where hell week is right because all we're all we're trying to do there is like i need a guy that can do the job no matter what and can still think on his feet that's all we're trying to get so that's first phase is we down all the people that can't mentally handle the grind 
that they're going to be put into. How bad of a suck is that? It's yeah, it's like suck factor ten x <laughs> by by all means. Yeah, it's by far the shittiest part of buds. Yeah, and and you know, looking back on it now, like in hindsight, I had a blast, right? Because you're all shitty together, you're all miserable together, you're all like getting your ass beat together, kind of building that building a team to to defeat the cadre, right? We run from that nowadays, don't we? We do. Yeah, we do. Adversity is is scary for people, right? Because mm-hmm. life's and this could be we can get into this later. Yeah, on, oh, totally. Yeah. Like life right now in the United States is way too goddamn easy on anybody. Mm. To where people have to find something to complain about. Right. Like I mean, the whole cancel culture. Like, really? Somebody says something on the internet, and you're just going to spend months just beating them up up about it? Life's too easy. Like, yeah, right. hey, go struggle for real for a little bit, <laughs> wondering where your next meal is going to come from. You know, and you're not getting a welfare check. You're not getting a free handout or anything else. No. Like, yeah, let's struggle for a little bit. And see how good you have it. Yeah, yeah. So that phase one. Yep. So first phase. First phase is just Beat the down. smash down. Yeah. Yep. Weed out all the guys that can't do it. So after you get through first phase, we're typically down to, like my class started, I think, 120-ish. So now we're down to 30 or 40 guys. Jeez. If that. I have to look back at the numbers. But anyway, so that that's, the, that's, the major, right. that's the major weed out area is first phase. And at the end of first phase, okay, okay now we have a smaller group of guys that are smart enough and strong enough that we can start training. So then it gets into dive phase. So now we start learning how to scuba dive, do dive calc, dive physics, pool comp, be comfortable in the water. So we'll start running the dragger. So all of these different pieces, now I've got a guy that's thinking. He's teachable, he's learning, but he's also, we're still beating him down. We're still making him work hard. So that grind factor is still there. But now I'm now I'm mentally challenging them as well. And you're still going to lose guys there, right? Yeah, we're still going to lose yeah. guys there. Typically not nearly at nearly the higher percentage. Right. But, you know, we probably lost you know, another five or ten maybe. Okay. Through there. Because we still do pool comp, which is, you know, push the guys. They're underwater with their with their scuba gear on. Make believing that we're kind of like in a surf zone, getting thrown around. Right. Lose our mouthpiece, lose our goggles or, or our mask. Hoses get t- tied in knots. Tanks, all that's really doing is, okay, and I'm going to put the guy in a very tough, panicky position. Can he control his emotions? Mm. Can he control the situation and go through the very basic procedures that we've taught them over and over and over again? Mm. So we'll lose some guys at pool comp because they just panic underwater. They're just not naturally safe or comfortable under there. So we'll lose some there. We lose a maybe one on dive physics, like the, the calculation part of it, the math part of it. Right. At least back when I went through, because we had some dumb guys, but <laughs> <laughs> like we've weeded those out now. But yeah, yeah. So that's second phase, and then third phase we go out to San Clemente Island, and that's our our land warfare phase. Okay. So now we're learning weapons, moving together as a group, communicating communicating as a group, some explosives and some like mini missions. Like how do I how do I <clears throat> give the students a a problem set, and how do they figure out mm. and what are their what is their process to go through to figure out how to how to solve that problem again. So more teamwork stuff. Gotcha. Yeah. So did you, Terry Huyen, <laughs> did you believe that you would make it through from the initial entry point? Did you believe that you would be a Navy SEAL? I hate to sound egotistical or, or narcissistic, but yeah. I mean, yeah. And it, it probably had more to do with my upbringing of when you're told to do something or you sign up to do something, you do, do what it. you signed up to do. So like quitting, and again, I don't want to sound like a, some badass, but I never really thought about quitting because that wasn't what I signed up to do. 
I mean, it was scary along the way, but absolutely. It was tough along the way, absolutely. Did I ever think about the possibility of me not, make, not making it through? Absolutely. Mm. But I never really, like, let the, let that demon of quitting enter my enter my mind. You never thought about grabbing that bell and ringing it? No, no. no absolutely not. Wow. That's, and I, th- I don't think that's narcissistic. I think that's full confidence going in and the ability to recognize the importance of that hard work ethic that your parents instilled in you. I think yeah. that's a powerful thing. I think I was just too scared to go walk up there in front of my friends and, and Say quit. you didn't make yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a peer pressure too there, like right? Those, <laughs> those bastards are going to make fun of me if I walk up there. <laughs> what What was the most difficult part of all that for you in, in, in making it through? Honestly, do you remember one thing that was just like so challenging to the point where you felt like this is, this might be the thing? Uh, probably you, not, probably not one thing, but I mean, everything was a struggle. Everything was, was tough. Yeah. Uh, the water stuff for me was kind of my like saving grace because okay. I was very comfortable in the water growing up in the water. So that was like when you're yelling at me or I'm on a two mile ocean swim, I'm in my happy zone. They can't hear, they can't touch me. They can't, you know, they can't do anything to me other than make me stay in the water. It's cold, but fuck everybody's cold, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, all, the whole class is cold. I, I can do that. So I would say like water was my like relax point to, to a degree, but the, like the soft sand running for, you know, obviously it's an audio podcast, but, um, maybe five and a half foot tall and like a little midget legs. <laughs> vertically challenged a ver- little. <laughs> very vertically challenged. Yeah. So that like trying to keep up with the class, I was always in a green squad. So like oh. every time we did a run, mentally I knew it was going to suck because I was always going to be in the back no matter how fast or how, how hard I worked. Yeah. I was always going to be in the back and get special attention. <laughs> Which was, you don't want that special no, attention. No, no. You don't want to be in there. I, I was, like, that's any that's any military training. No, like, I want to be know. the gray man. Yeah. I want somebody to be disappeared. But, yep. <laughs> yeah, I was fast enough to pass all the tests, but like not fast enough to, to stay up on all the conditioning runs. Right, right. So, so I like to think that they helped me out by the extra attention. Yeah. <laughs> they made you stronger and faster? <laughs> yes. They prepared you for your future, I, I guess my will, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's uh, metaphor metaphorical for a lot of military training. <laughs> yes. Did you so when you made it through? When you make it through, it's all three phases, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. You, you do you gain the trident then? Is it after? No. So that's it's, that's later, it's changed right? some over the over the years, right? We've, we've matured as a force, especially after nine eleven with that, the op tempo we've been in. So when I went through, you know, after we graduated, buds after third phase, you don't get anything. You go when you get your certificate, like, hey, good job, suck it up, and I'll go to the team. So I went to airborne school. That's like three weeks of, you know, airborne down to Fort Benning, trying to trying to stay out of trouble. But, you know, 19 and 20-year-old <laughs> kids are that just got their ass beat for six months. They're pretty strong. Yeah. So, so try to avoid being in trouble there. And then and I went to Team 4. And at that point, we start kind of like a probation period. Okay. So it's like there's so no – So it's still not guaranteed. No, still not. I mean, so that's six months of being Jeez. at Team 4, producing, working, learning – and seeing if I if, if I can still pass that next crucible of of passing my trident board. So at that time we were still doing what's called STT, so SEAL tactical training or SEAL qualification training. Now, so it's another three months or so of more advanced training. So every every training cycle or selection you go through, it continues to push the bar forward. So that was you know, STT training made it through there. And then after graduating that, spending a little bit longer at the team, then you do your trident review board. Mm. So you go in and sit in front of a bunch of scary old dudes, crusty up guys, and they're yelling at you and asking you all kinds of questions, like five questions at the same time, and you're trying to figure out which one you want to answer, just ramping up the stress. At this point, they already know if if, if you're going to fit or not. Right. But now they're kind of giving you that last little crucible. 
Yeah. Yeah. So then you, after that, you knew that. Did you know by then that you? Oh hell no! I was still scared. Like, I'm still scared. Like, yeah. It's a test. Right. It's a test. Yeah. Anytime you're tested in front of your friends or your peers, especially your senior peers, like like these guys, and still being a brand new guy, like I've heard all the stories about some of you guys, yeah. and they're all tatted up. I'm like, oh shit, here we go. There's there. probably like some Vietnam cats. Oh yeah. yeah, at the time, yeah, in 90, what was that, 93, 94? Yeah. Yeah, there's still some Vietnam cats Jeez. running around. Yeah, so, <clears throat> yeah, then after, you know, competing that review board, and I eventually got my try after that. Yeah. Mm. What, what, what's the pride of that like? That, and, and then I had this conversation uh, yesterday with, with Mike on the drive down. It's, I feel like today the guys are slighted. Because at this point, they get their trident after SQT, so they never have to show up to a team and prove themselves that they belong on that team mm. or that they, they've earned that trident. So wow. I feel like like that crucible of going through BUDS, going through a jump school, STT, on my probation period, working with my platoon and the, and the training staff at the command, that that validated what I was doing and, and they believed in what I was doing. So that that aspect of them welcoming me into the team was huge, and that, guys aren't doing that now. There's no welcome to the brotherhood of of earning your trident. That's interesting, yeah. in my opinion, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and that's what this is about: your opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, so that moment has to be candescent. That moment has to be something that oh, illuminates you, lights you up, lights a fire under you. Yeah, I think there was, if I remember, there's probably two of us that got a trident that day, and you had the entire command. Out there at quarters in the morning, there you know, we're in our, in our dress camis. The command master chief does a speech in front of everybody, and then every single operator at the command comes and welcomes you to the community. Wow! Yeah. Wow. So now that you're part of SEAL Team Four, what then becomes the tempo, and what do you remember about your time at? Yeah, Team it's, uh, so this is '90s, so not a whole lot going on, and we're at Team Four at that point. We're focused on South and Central America. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of working jungle. Jungle tactics, water tactics, river ring tactics, uh, through workup and then deploying to Panama. And from there, we would spread out all across South South Central America to do essentially what you would consider these days as like a mobile training team. Okay. You would send four or five, maybe a, maybe a half a half a platoon to go to a foreign country and, and work with their with our counterparts. Gotcha. And then train them up on whatever tactics you know they wanted to. To deal with so almost a green beret mission in a way yeah similar yeah embedded yeah. tactical kind of yeah like they're they're shorter like two or three week trips okay. gotcha yeah so on a six month deployment we may do uh, who knows like six or eight six or eight different trips you know around around the ao and and do the work how much did this prepare you psychologically your time in the teams early do you think that was pertinent towards what what happened when those towers went down and, you know, and when the GWAT began, Global War on Terrorism, what, what, do, you, do you believe that that time in the teams helped build you up and prepare you for that? Uh, it, yeah, I think so, because at this point, you know, when I came into the, to the Navy and, and when I first showed up to Team 4, I'm like 19, 20 years old or something. Yeah. So by the time the towers came down in 2001, I've already been in and kind of doing the job for a while. So I was very confident in the skills. I knew... How to do CQB? We know how to do jungle stuff. I'd, at this point, I'd already gone through sniper school, so I was very confident in my job skills. And at this point, I've already select, you know, screened for the National Mission Force. I'm on on the one of the squadrons. So even though I was still a newer guy, I felt like we were at the top of our game mm. for the what we had trained for right prior to September 11th. 
And what's what's the pride of making it into that national mission force and being a part of that? Oh, it's just just to me, it's it's just another crucible, like that next level up. Like, so I told you know my my wife, but girlfriend at the time, I was like, hey, if I stay in the Navy, I'm going to go to screen for for this. And you know, I really had no idea what it was, even though I one of my platoon chiefs or both my platoon chiefs were from that command. They never really talked about what it was or what they did. Hmm. So it was a lot of hearsay, kind of rumor mill-ish okay. to a degree. You know, like the, through the network, you kind of understand what they are, what they do, but I really didn't know what I was signing up for. Yeah. So it was, it was good. You know, you, and you walk in there, walk in the locker room, you got maybe 40 other guys that are just like you, yeah. hungry, young, ready to go and, and working hard. And, and then a training cadre that was ready to test you. Yeah. Yeah, so that was, I think that was like another six months for that whole training. Was that more of a test than the initial, ba- in the initial phases for you? Was that harder even? It was uh, tactically harder, right? Yeah. Because now they're now they're taking you up to the graduate level stuff. Because mm. once you screen and your master chief at, at the team four says, yes, I, I have confidence in this guy going there, then it's, you know, you're back into the crucible, back into the grind of proving yourself every single time and now the tactics are jumped up because, hey, if you're going to be on National Mission Force, you've got to be able to operate in stressful environments, make good decisions, be fast with your communications, and be confident in, in whatever decision-making process you go through. So as you're going through the house for CQB, you have to have confidence that you know what you're doing and the guys behind you know what you're doing. So that's what, what the cadre is looking for all the time. Well, one, are they safe, right? Because we, you know, we can't deal with safety issues. Right. But, yeah, it's just like operating at that graduate level. Like continue to push push forward. It's all precision at that point, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How efficient, how fast, how confident, and how smart can I be? Wow. And during the course of that, obviously, uh, with everything that had, you know, that you, you're making it through into this, there's got to be an extreme amount of pride in that, of course. You said it's another level. Mm-hmm. How much longer after that training uh, did september 11th happened so so when did you become a part of that course? yes that was 98 i went through that and so just a few years yeah just a few like i said i was still new wow still new up there even though i'd done a few rotations and now i'm much more confident in the skills i'm now included into this into the squadron now fully embedded and capable of doing my job now when 9-11 happened wow what, what was what do you remember about that that feeling and where were you? Uh, we were on standby, so we were on. The, we were the standby squadron when when September 11th happened, and at this point, I just transitioned down to our sniper cell for for the squadron. And there's probably like three or four of us. We're in the in the gym, just getting our morning workout in. The little TVs up in the corner of the gym. You see a tower hit. Wondering what's going on. Figuring out, like, hey, let's go back to the office. See what's going on. By the time we get back to the office, <clears throat> pagers are going off. Second tower's going on. Head jets getting called upstairs. And we knew at that as soon as that can as soon as that second tower went, we knew something wasn't right. Mm-hmm. So we started even over on standby, our bags are packed, guns are ready, guns are zeroed, comms are ready, batteries, new batteries and everything. We still re- replace all the batteries, rejapping all your mags. Because we're not sure what we're gonna do, but we know we're gonna be doing something. Right. So there's there's a horror in that moment, right? Like wow, this happened. It's reality, place. right? Like yeah. it's another reality check. It's like because leading up to that, it's like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna train for hostage rescue. Well, we're gonna train for these missions, and once that happened, those missions are there. Like, we're going on these missions. There's no more question about when or if it may happen. It's coming. Mm-hmm. What was it like when that for when you first got assigned? You did Afghanistan or Iraq first? Uh, my first one was Afghanistan, so I went to Afghanistan in July of '02. Okay, early. 
Yeah. So we would do, the way the cycle worked out, one of the other squadrons went first, and then we kind of rotated for a little bit. So it was July of 02 by the time I got there. What were the challenges of that deployment? Did you feel ready when you got over there? I think so. And kind of the, the benefit of not being the first squadron over there, you get to learn. You know, we had a really good communication system from the guys forward, what they're seeing, what tactics they're seeing, what gear works, what gear they need so we can prep. So we're just continually prepping for another six months or so before we got over there. Understanding what the environment's going to look like, even though we weren't there, we kind of had a good good feel for what we're walking into. But still, even you know, being the first combat deployment that I've been on, that it's real. At this point, we'd already lost guys in Roberts Ridge. We've already had funerals. Knowing the potential for what we're walking into was still kind of there. Yeah. You know, butterflies in your stomach as you're flying in and you step off. You're like, here it is. It's, it's, it's time to get it on. I ask a lot of guys this, but what's that first action like for you in experiencing that? Did you feel ready? Was it instinctual? I, I it's still butterflies in the stomach when you're when you sit in a helicopter taking off for the first time with live ammunition in your gun, ready to go, understanding that something may happen. Yeah, yeah. I think I, think I probably got lucky. So we launched on how many dry holes that you know they saw a ghost somewhere in human. He was like, oh, Bin Laden's over here. So we'd launch on something and there'd be these farmers that are pissed off each other. <laughs> so I, I think launching on those on those ghost missions or those dry holes kind of took took that edge off a little bit. Mm. Like It's like, okay, hey, we're here we go. A little more relaxed now. Kind of get into the rhythm, into that cycle of, of able to think clearly as you're walking off that target or walking off the helicopter to step on target. Yeah. You know, the butterflies are gone. Like, okay, here we go again. Let's be ready. But, you know, who knows what we're going to find. Yeah. When it did first hit, though, what was that like when you first experienced that action? I, I, my first, like, gunfight kind of thing? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. It wasn't until, like, that whole deployment, I never fired my weapon. Never fired my weapon. Which so kind of goes in. dry holes. Yeah, a lot yeah. of dry holes. We spent a lot of time doing some missions in the mountains, up and down the mountains, back and forth. This is important, <laughs> though, because yeah. this is the thing that people really well, don't Well, the stereotype, understand. right, is like, Oh, you're a SEAL or you're a sniper. Like, how many people did you kill or how many missions? <laughs> right. In reality, for a lot of guys going overseas, tell us it was 2003 Iraq for the first time, and then, like for me, not really up up close and personal face to face combat until like 06. Mm. I'd gone through a couple cycles of before it was like no shit, like right here. Yeah. Like shooting across the, a field or into the tree line or something. That's one thing, but when you're inside a room with another guy. That's a completely different story. Yeah, and you, and you, so you're building up over two, three years. Oh yeah, but that yeah. that that's probably helpful, right? Oh, I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, w- what did you guys learn in the process of that first deployment of Afghanistan? Oh, How much change? I mean, <laughs> how much time we got? <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> that's ten hours left. <laughs> yeah. What what what, was, did, what was that like? I th- I think for me, like learning how to deal with the potential threats that we're walking into, understanding. And learning our enemy's tactics on how they do things and staying two or three feet ahead of them and being ready to go. And then, and then uh, like again, the communication with everybody. As we're transitioning, like we turn over the next guys. We tell them, here's the targets we hit. Here's where they are. Here's the people that were there. Here's the people that weren't there. So that, that knowledge that we're building over time was very beneficial because now I turn over to the next squad and they turn it back over the next one and they give it back to us. So we're building that knowledge base of areas of targets of personalities 
of tactics that they're using against us, which ones that they're adapting to counter our tactics. You know, as we're adjusting our tactics to, to stay ahead of them, they're adjusting their tactics as well. That that constant wisdom and knowledge transfer was probably what set us above or set us ahead of everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. The same thing our army counterparts. So, you know, they're doing the same thing, and we're sharing back and forth with each other as well. So, like that that at that tier one level. We were adapting much faster than than the enemy could adapt to us. That's awesome. Um, when you get over there, you talked about '06. Mm-hmm. You got over there. Was that Afghanistan? Yeah, it was back to Afghanistan. Okay. Yeah. What what area were you guys operating in at the time? Uh, we for that deployment, I was everywhere. Prim- <laughs> well, uh, yeah, we, yeah, we bounced around a lot, but I yeah. was kind of primarily down in the southwest, down the Helmand area. Okay. Yeah, but we would get recalled back to go do a mission because we had smaller print footprint there we had of our squadron we had some of our guys in iraq as well so we were covering both theaters wow so we had a much smaller body pool so we would get pulled back go do missions and then come back to our outstations do our work with with the or the other agencies other groups, that yeah. are there yes yeah other, other characters that are in the area so yeah. working with them then going back and working together wow yeah, it, was, it was a lot of back and forth but you don't think about that though Transitioning between theaters, yeah. like that's that's not a real. Well, we thing weren't. For... I mean, we weren't. I wasn't physically going okay. from Iraq to Afghanistan, but we had of our squadron, we had probably two thirds of us in one country gotcha. and a third in the other country. Okay, okay. So now, if I've got two thirds of a squadron, I have a lot less firepower, a lot less bodies to do prosecute targets. So we have to, you know, pull back our outstations and go do go do some missions and then move forward, go back out. Afghanistan, Helmand Province, two thousand six. Obviously, <laughs> sporty. <laughs> yes, the the British mainly operating in the area right at the time. This was was yeah. this before American Marines got there? Uh, I don't. Or was remember. this right at the time? Because I knew I, that this this British... was like we were so we were outside of Helmand Province, but not far west. Okay, like far west was the Wild West. Marines hadn't. I don't think they'd pushed in there not very much at, at this point. Yeah, Brits were down there. The Canadians were down there. And we just kind of cycle through and help help whoever we could with our, you know, just two or three of us running different operations and helping plug in and use primarily, you know, if we're going to plug in with the with the Kansoff guys, we're essentially plugging in with them because I can bring an asset. Mm. You know, like some of those guys can't call an AC-130 on yeah. target, but I can't. Those so, are Canadian special operations, <clears throat> yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if I'm working with them or, or some of the, even the Green Beret guys or plugging in with, you know, some of the other characters there you know we bring assets to the table that they don't get mm. information and intel to the table that they don't get so kind of using using us as a uh, force provider for yeah. a lot of a lot of issues not necessarily hey terry come with us because we need you to shoot people like no us <laughs> like they, you got plenty of guys with guns that you don't need me for that but here's how i can help you right with, with my two-man team well you said sporty how how sporty was it at the time <laughs> in 06 oh i yeah. on that deployment Man, what did what was? I hate to say it like like it's a sport, but body, no, I know what you mean though. Uh, the body count for the for the task unit that was or the the task force that was that we were part of was probably a hundred plus. Wow, wow, yeah. you're dealing with a lot of action. Dealing with action, but you know some of that stuff is call for fire or right. you know, drop bombs on guys because it's a lot easier to to do that with. But yeah, it was sporty, getting ramped up. I mean, it wasn't as bad as it. it Continued to progress to from like 07, 08, then it, that's when it really got really got hot and heavy down there. Mm. In this collection of deployments, was there a moment where it got real tough, where you just you know where you lost guys, where there was real 
almost difficulty in comprehending what the situation was. Were there moments I, like that? Where you I, felt- I feel I feel blessed that every deployment that I was physically overseas with the guys, nobody was seriously hurt. Wow! So we had that had, some, had some injuries and stuff, and and granted, it had nothing to do with me. You know, I'm just I just happened to be there at the time, right? And nobody was hurt. But yeah, being home when guys kill get killed, like it's it's serious. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So oh six. So you said there was an there was a time when you realized the combat got real. Like you're yeah. closed in, <clears throat> and things are getting close. Can you can you talk a little bit about that and what the situation was? Yeah, and and like at this point it was less. I don't know, I'd say it's like less personal now. Yeah. So we've been at, at war for a while. A lot of combat. A lot of guys get killed. It's it's not like a retribution. Like oh, you killed so and so. We're gonna. You know, I'm going to do whatever I can to, to return, you know, on that. It was more a job like, okay. So we're, so for the, for this one, Tom and I, we were snipers leading in a very small assault cell. That was what was left for guys in the country into a compound, typical compound that everybody's seen over there. You know, the big Adobe walls are top. These are a little bit higher than usual. So we threw a ladder up and again, I'm very vertically challenged. So I get up the ladder and I can't reach the top. So I'm like, well, shit. So I come back down, and Tom's a little bigger than me. So he went up. He was able to climb up, and then I went up, and he was able to help me up on, onto the – basically just straddling the wall because we had no – no, we couldn't stand on the ladders or anything else. So as we're straddling the wall, there's two guys on the second deck right by us. Okay, no big deal. They're sleeping. They compound big courtyards down off to our right. They're going to breach this gate to the right and then go in and deal with whatever the – reason we were coming to knock on this door to night places you know whatever it was right <clears throat> so as we're as we were there tom and i you know we're covered now we can see there's more rooms there's dark rooms that the guys outside don't know are there mm-hmm. so we're covering them there's action people in the courtyard in rooms sleeping but we know they're down there and something with the breach made a little bit of noise and the guys that we're watching literally 10 feet from us yeah. you know just below our legs Ten feet on the, you know, maybe maybe eight feet below the top of the wall, in their beds right next to us. Wake up. Decided that they were going to pick up their guns, and that was our first kind of like in my face, like shit. Here we go. Wow. Did the job. <clears throat> we took care of, of that issue. Breach went off. Now we we bailed off the wall, cleared the rooms upstairs because they got the guys in the courtyard couldn't see us. We had to make sure that threat was clear. And it'd be nobody else in there, and then came back and you know prosecuted the target, and collected intel, and all that kind of stuff. But it was funny. Like I, like personally, I didn't feel like any remorse that I had to take the actions I took. Yeah, it was. I was perfectly comfortable the fact that the situation we we're in, they chose to escalate to the point that we had to deal with it. Right. So I don't know if it's my way of reasoning with you know <laughs> with with delivering death, or it's the fact that. I was just doing my job. Yeah. And at this point, it's 2006, so I'd already been, you know, what, 15 years in doing doing a job or 16 or 13, whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. That's that's wild. I don't think people think about that either. It's like we don't go in as bloodthirsty killers. Yeah. There's not, I mean, they're, I'm sure they're sociopaths, you know, and just like anything. Yeah, yeah of course. You know, right. but yeah. you get into it. You get in for the defense of your brothers. Yeah, my and job. And you, know, you our, got a job. Our job, well, Tom and I's job was to protect the assault. Right. Like I'm there. They, they're doing their job because they know I have their back. 
And the moment that that might become compromised, you've got yeah. to take care of what you so, yeah, take I'm care like, of. Yeah, I'm, I'm not doing it about me. I'm, I'm protecting who we're supposed to be protecting. Right. Now, there was an earlier mission, uh, and, and one that gets brought up all the time with yes. you, I know. <laughs> like, there's, there's a couple of them. We talk yeah. about it 10,000 times. <laughs> I know, yeah. There were a couple of times, a couple yeah. of missions like that. Now, you were very personally involved in the Jessica Lynch mission in Iraq. I, and, I was one of you know, one of the bigger you know, bigger party that was taking care of that. Thing, oh, yes. Right, yeah. yeah. So can you, can you talk a little bit about and describe that situation for those that don't know it? Because there are yeah. those that don't know it, especially yeah, it, now, this many years yeah, down so the road. Yeah, so that was 03. So, yeah, even there's even a lot of people in the military that probably are not aware. Or just of. born. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Or very young when it happened. So, right. yeah, so Jessica was part of a uh, patrol, got separated. Yeah, I may have the facts mixed up, but their patrol got separated from the main supply patrol going through. Took a wrong turn or whatever happened. Got into uh, a bit of an ambush accident issue. She was knocked unconscious and taken hostage. Uh, the rest of her patrol was all deceased at this point. She was taken hostage. We got called in like, hey, there's an American missing. So at this point, there's probably six six or seven of us, you know, some recce guys, some leadership guys. We launched from our staging base that we were at, the Nasseria. Land there, jump off the 130, get in the back of a like a Marine six by that's going in the direction we need to go to, and eventually make our way up to where there's a Marine one star general just launching Artie into Nasseria. <laughs> and, and it's funny, I was telling somebody this. Was he by day. himself? Or no, he had, his, he had his crew there. Okay, his crew was there. But I got out there and I'm like, yeah. is that a fucking star? I'm like, because <laughs> in my, like, you never see an admiral out doing that stuff. No, or you yeah. never see a lot of generals out doing no. But he was dirty, grimy. That's the most Marine the thing I've ever heard. I don't know. I was like, oh, my God, I love this dude. I don't yeah. even know if he's a good Marine or not, but this is fucking awesome, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's like a trash, like living in a trash pit in Nasseria and just fucking launching already all day. Wow. Awesome. But anyways, we we get in there, debrief him. He kind of knew we were coming, even though we're not, we're not really stepping into the territory, but kind of let's go in, check in with him, make sure he's good, let him know what our plan is, because really we don't have much of a plan other than a couple reports that she's somewhere in this area. Yeah. And then we just started hitting a few vehicle patrols, hitching rides and Humvees, just checking out the area, see if we can see anything or find some, any kind of intel that leads us to where she needs to be. And it, <laughs> that initial, I felt like we were there for a week, but initial couple of days that we were there, nothing really kind of spoke up to us that, like, hey, there's something going on. So we had to, we launched back to our base. From there, we went and did another hit on another, another target. And about this time, now we've got a human source that, has good intel on where she's at in the hospital, right? Mm. So then we, <clears throat> entire force goes back. We rig up a camera. He does a walkthrough. We know where she's at. So we launched a massive, probably the biggest operation I've ever been a part of. Because we had our squadron. We had rangers. We've got strikers. We've got Marines on the other side of town causing diversionary forces. We've got TF wow. flying us in. It was, it was huge. But it's justified, right? Because, hey, we got a Michigan American. We're going to do... Yeah. Whatever we had, and the intel we had at this point was there's lots of bad guys using this hotel as a, as a base, so we're not really sure what we're walking into. You know, this is way before the constant ISR that you could see everything and understanding the networks and right dismantling information like we do now. So there might so be ten, a lot or there might be a thousand. Yeah, there could be you know up there two hundreds. We're told and like, hey, there may be two hundred people in this in this general area that are they're still fighting us. Yeah. So we launched a massive 
campaign, well, not a campaign, it was just a mission. Like army guys probably laughing like, that's not a campaign. <laughs> but, but anyway, so <laughs> yes, we fly in, we land some assaulters in the courtyard to go right to her room where we knew they're at. Uh, recce guys like myself and, and some of the other guys, we land on a rooftop blocking anybody from coming out and, and using the high ground towards us, but also being able to move down through the, through the stairwell if we needed to and also guide people in. So as we're up there, Rangers, strikers, some of our ground force guys are, are coming in as well to secure the outside as we're taking down the, taking in the hotel or the hospital. And right away, she was exactly where, where we thought she was going to be. Awesome. Guys got on her right away, got her secured, got her taken care of, stabilized, and off to the helicopter and gone. Wow. Uh, but before that happened, as, I, as I'm looking down, I'm, I'm watching the strikers roll in, or we were watching. I say I. I we were watching the strikers roll in. And out in front of the hospital, I, I can make out like little berms. There's nine, nine little berms, which are essentially dug out grave sites. Mm-hmm. We knew we were missing nine people. Uh, and the strikers are rolling up. They're almost to the point where they're going to drive over them to take their overwatch position. So we're lasering, lassoing, trying to get their attention. Eventually get them on comms. They're like, hey, don't go any farther. Yeah. And then so they were able to recover those remains, send them home. We were able to bring Jessica home and mission success. Not as, um, No shots fired as far as I know. Wow. At least not in the target because – Nobody was there besides the hospital staff, some other patients. You know, we we went through and cleared the whole hospital and found like a essentially like a workstation. They've got radios, little sand table set up, so they were using it. They just weren't there at the time. Right. How how fulfilling was that? Oh, absolutely. I yeah. Mean, of all the missions, you know, for twenty six years, everything I've done, like those two, so bringing her home and then and then Captain Phillips, like being part of something, bringing Americans home. Yeah, is exactly what I signed up for. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's <laughs> gonna be powerful for you. It is. It, yeah. It's very, very, very meaningful to me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that's what people don't realize is like these are part of the reasons you sign up. Yeah, I mean, I'm. We go not again, not me personally, yeah. but we sign up for this, willing to to sacrifice ourselves mm-hmm. for that bigger purpose. Mm-hmm. And when you're getting into a moment like that, you have no idea what that might no. be yet. Yeah, so. and, and the guys that went in on the ground level, they had no idea what they're doing, but their mission was to get to her as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. So they're running past all these threats, you know, putting themselves at high risk of danger to go secure the target, right? Yeah. Wow. So let's talk about your, you know, you get through your career and, you know, you, you talked about 06, 07, 08. And things becoming more frenetic as you're going over there. So Afghanistan as an environment is changing. Um, and are you are you seeing some of the writing on the wall? Obviously, now we can talk about those things. But Afghanistan now, oh, we're yeah. out. Yeah. Did you? Most s- of us. Yeah, mo- <laughs> most of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But did you did you feel that that was a problem even being over there early? Did you see writing on the wall as far as how are we going to maintain this? How are we conducting ourselves in warfare? What does this look like long term? Well, this is probably after my first or second deployment over there. I, I had this conversation with my dad. I'm like, because he was a Vietnam vet. I'm like, it, until we educate them or they become educated, Afghanistan is never going to change. Because mm. what I noticed over there is like village cares about the village. The right. family cares about the village or the family cares about the family. 
But if there's a village in this valley and 30 miles away, there's another village, they could give two shits if, if each of them had power or each of them had food. Yeah. If they were, had a room, had a roof over the head, had food, they were winning. Mm. Right. So, and, and I came back and had that conversation. I said, until we fix education, it's never going to get better. So, Terry, you're telling me they weren't looking for McDonald's drive through No. <laughs> yeah. And That's just, democracy. Just dumping billions of dollars into corrupt politicians? <laughs> yeah. No, it doesn't work. Yeah. I thought they did. <laughs> but it, it, granted, like, the U.S. military is not designed to build nations. Right? No. I think we've proven that over the last hundred years or so. Like, that's not our job. That's not what we're good at, obviously. Right. And we're here to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States, freedoms around the world, our, our partners, our friends. That's what we're here for. Like, bad guys, get rid of them. Yeah. Like, building roads and structures and schools and <laughs> political parties. Like, fuck no, that's not what we do. I had an Iwo Jima. I'd just love to tell this story. Yeah. Paul Merriman, uh, Iwo Jima Marine. Yeah, just a, a classic person, a, a great human being. Mm-hmm. Fought on Iwo Jima, bar gunner. Uh, you know, his job to, you know, to take out enemy targets and pillboxes before the flamethrower goes in, <laughs> okay. which is pretty much one of the worst jobs you can have. Oh, right? absolutely. absolutely. So just the guy who's running and got an 18 years old. Um, this guy was an incredible man. He went on to own a company called Houston Industrial Supply Company after. It turned in, he turned it from a company that was $100,000 in debt into a $184 million company that was in, as many of those guys do, you know, successful yeah. after. 48 states, two countries, just an incredible man. And he, not, not a very combative Marine as I met him. He was a very calm, very calm demeanor um, and did not, never, didn't really seem the persona of what you would think of as a Marine. He no. was very calm spoken and, and very wise worded. And he said, not that there aren't Marines that are wise. Don't take that against me, Marines. Uh, <laughs> but his, you know, blunt force object, he was not like that. He was more, he was very surgical in his thinking. And he said to me, he said, you know, I get these Marine Corps times. I got in trouble because he said, didn't get in trouble, but I got written a letter back saying, well, that's just not how it is anymore. He said, I wrote a letter to the editor of the Marine Corps Times. And I said, I'm looking at all these magazines and I'm seeing you guys setting up schools and going out yeah. on missions to build roads. He goes, that's not the Marine Corps. We're no. bulldogs. We kill people. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, Sam, I didn't tell you. Sam, I didn't tell you to go build the road. To the yeah. Paul, Paul, I didn't tell you to go build the road. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like he's get, he's getting personally like mad yeah. about yeah, this. Because they're so far out of scope of what they're designed to do. Right. Granted, I mean, most soldiers are smart enough to figure out whatever you task them to do. Right. Yeah. But again, like nation building is not us. No. No. And, and so you're realizing this pretty early on. When yeah. You're talking yeah. About pretty that. early on. I'm seeing this and understand this and, and seeing the problems that happen. So I, it, where it went recently, even though there's no, no reason under God's green earth of why you speed up the timeline and do it like, like it was executed. Yeah. I still, had, I mean, I'm fine with us leaving. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't understand the, the process of why it had to be like it was. Yeah. Because like over the last year, there wasn't any problems, right? <clears throat> deal was done we're gonna leave here's a process we're gonna work through the process and, and continue to slowly pull back right and you know those guys over there were fine with it they didn't bother us we were good everybody was happy and until the yeah until the mess happened do you realize though that in that moment no matter what the taliban's gonna sneak back in to power i mean it yeah it, because the government was not there you yeah know? the government wasn't really a trustful government that had control over the country so then is the play from your mind, and I want to know your opinion on this, 
obviously, you know, you're not announcing it as fact, <laughs> just opinion. Yeah. But what do you what do you believe is the play there? Because, you know, I've gotten into that personally where I've had discussions with a team at Texas Public Radio and NPR. They asked me, you know, what do you think about guys being over there, about maintaining a force over there? Do you believe that there is a position to maintain some troop strength at that level just to keep guys in check? I think it, I think there's, again, my, my opinion, two ways to approach it. One – Right off the bat, we go in, smash, kill everybody, get rid of the Taliban, go home. Right? Like, we're not here to make you guys a better place. We're just here to deal with the problem that dealt with, you know, gave us the the 9-11 attacks. Like, I don't care about internal strife. I don't care about heroin. Like, all that crap that we're dealing with, like, that's not my business as a military guy. So that's option one. Option two is if, if we decide to do that long road that we did, you have to have that presence there. And, and buy into, like, hell, just like post, post-World post War II Germany. We're still in Germany, right? Yeah, still there. Still there. So it's like, if that's going to be our, our play, then we have to we have to own that play. Yeah, yeah. It can't turn into just a political hot, hot potato that, oh, like, oh, hey, this is, a administration did this, so I have to change it. Or another administration did this, so I have to go back to what they said. Mm. Yeah. While we're on the subject of that, what was the feeling from you when when what happened in Afghanistan happened? Oh, I mean, it's heartbreaking because no, I know, even though nothing's being reported, there's probably been thousands of people killed since we left. Yeah, you know, like anybody that anybody that helped us is gone. Let alone all of our industrial and military technology that Chinese have now, or Iranians have, or Russians have. Yeah, that we just dumped. Yeah, let alone the taxpayer dollars that are there. All the all the strife that we put into it for a potential political move that wasn't needed to happen. Mm. So it was very heartbreaking to see how it went down for absolutely no reason at all. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, that's devastating for all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of guys expected it. Some didn't expect it to go the way it did. Yeah, I don't uh, think anybody expected it to go. Quite that way. Quite that way for no reason. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so, your time in the SEALs, you're in till when? When did you get out? Uh, July of 18, so it's Jeez, 20, three 20 years. Yeah, but I, That's not very God, long. It is. Yeah, it is. It seems like a long time. <laughs> I guess it's a lot, time goes slower when you're uh, enjoying it. And yeah. Have some control over it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so... You know, we obviously we had spoken a little bit about the Captain Phillips mission. And when was that? Exactly? That was uh, April of '09. April yeah. of '09. Okay, yeah. And can you just briefly talk about it, just enough to give people an idea? And obviously, they can look it up. And yeah, and kind of look into it. Yeah. So, so essentially, what Captain Phillips was, or he's a person, obviously, but <laughs> but the whole the whole mission that everybody references right. as the Captain Phillips mission was a uh, <coughs> a. Uh, Ship was taken taken hostage by uh, some Somali pirates. Whatever happened on the ship happened, and, and they essentially ended up launching a lifeboat off the side of the ship. Took Captain Phillips with them. So now I've got, an, or we have, as a nation, have another American hostage in somebody else's hands. So, <clears throat> which is kind of kind of unique because now we've kind of gone full circle from you know, early eighties. 70s, 80s, 90s, like what we as a, as a tier one force were designed to do was hostage rescue, and our focus was hostage rescue at sea. 
got sidetracked with all of Iraq, Afghanistan, the GWAT going on. Now we're 09 and we're back to hostage rescue SC. Yeah. Exactly what we're designed for. So uh, <laughs> that kind of turned into, I was happened to be in the right, or again, I, I keep saying I. We you know, had a small team. We were, we were four staged in Africa. Happened to be close enough to where we could begin to, in effect, a uh, desirable end state. So we jumped in, uh, linked up with the Bainbridge and Halliburton, began negotiations, began resolving the situation best we could until until we had more people coming in from from stateside, the standby guys come in and jump in with more assets, more capability to kind of step in and resolve that, which which we ended up doing by getting Captain Phillips back and eliminating the threats, and he got sent home by his, to his wife and kids and happily ever after for him. Fulfilling as well, huh? Very fulfilling. And, and what was unique on that one, and I feel very, very, <clears throat> very grateful for is after the mission, all the medical happened and debriefs happened. Uh, the other guys jumped in, stayed on one ship. We headed back to, to Africa so he could fly home. So that whole ride back, which was a day or so back, 12, 18 hours, I can't remember exactly what it was. It was just me and him kind of hanging out in the room. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Playing Monopoly, chit-chatting, talking about life, talking about kids, talking about family, and kind of helping. You know, I didn't talk to him about what happened, but kind of helping him vet and get back into like being a real person again. Yeah. So it was. Again, I'm very grateful to have that one-on-one time or you know alone time. I had a small my small team there, but it was kind of essentially him and him and I to kind of chit-chat and hang out for a while. Just a couple of Americans. Just a couple dudes hanging out, <laughs> hanging out on a boat. Isn't that weird though? How you, we talked about that, right? With trauma, and that's a very yeah. real picture. You oh, invited you invited trauma into your life by joining what you did. You made the choice. Well, that I, you're going to put yourself in situations. Well, once right? we got yeah, and then once we got onto the boat and started going back, I could I could physically see in his face mm-hmm. what he was going through. Yeah, you know, trying to process it and, and go through it. At this point, I've already seen combat. I've already lost friends. I wouldn't say I'm callous to it, but I'm I'm re- able to recognize it and help him talk through it. Right. Even though I'm not a psych by any means, but you know, I'm very, I wouldn't say smart man, but I get things figured out. So I could see he needed somebody to talk to. Yeah. So I, I was chatting with him. We got him on the phone with some other people that could deal with him. We had some different people roll through, you know, medical guys roll through and just keep checking on him, make sure everything's good. But yeah, it was like, I just kind of stepped up and again, I'm, I'm, it's not about me, but we were able to step up and, and kind of help him start healing yeah. through that and kind of letting go of some of that stuff. Cause it seemed like from my experience is the longer you hold on to, to trauma or injury or the mental fatigue or whatever it's going to be, the longer you hold on to it, the, the harder it is to let go of. Mm, the more devastating it becomes. Yes. It, yeah. it just, it's, it's kind of like a rot just keeps, keeps eating away. So I, I wanted to help him kind of start off loading as much as he could. Yeah. That's special. That's awesome. Did you have you met him since that occurrence? Yeah, have you seen uh, him since? yeah. So that so that was April. That summer he came back and did our our seal reunion. So I walk up to seal reunion. We go to it every year. It's you know I won't say where it's at because but we go to it every year. Uh, there with my wife and kids and happened to see him and he was there with his wife. So we went over, chatted, and talked to him for a couple hours and he got to meet the wife and kids and wow. got to meet his wife and just super super humble person. Yeah, seemed a lot better off. Yeah, he seemed yeah. to be in a, in a pretty good place. Yeah. That's awesome. Wow. These, these again, are all the fulfilling things you talk about in service, right? Yes. This is what you sign up for. 
Well, the definition of the word service, right? Yeah, like exactly. Helping somebody else, right? Yeah. yeah. And you're there doing it. So you, you make it through a 26-year career. And you, get, you get to that point as a master chief and that position in the United States Navy. What, what's the thought process for you in getting out? Was it just your time? Did you know leading into that 26th year, like, this is it. I'm not, I can't uh, do this anymore. Or I don't want to. It was, it was really not that I didn't want to, because I, I, I enjoy my job and I kind of really felt like I flourished in that mentor role and you know, kind of helping, helping guys through the buds prep program, not just the students, but also professionalizing the force and the people underneath me and explaining how the military worked. You know, I call this kind of mentoring jobs, what you're really supposed to do as a, as a senior enlisted is, is you're a mentor for these guys, right? So I, I really like that. <clears throat> uh, my only real issue is now we've moved from Virginia. So we were in Virginia forever. Our kids grew up, moved. They stayed in Indiana while I was in Chicago. That was a very tough move for them. Mm-hmm. Now they're getting into their teenage years. So if I was going to stay in, we would have to move again to go to do essentially one last job. Really, you got about 30 years unless you're in a specific positions you know 30 is kind of the, the drop dead for everybody so i would have one more job which would require a move to one of the coasts probably back to virginia move the family do the do that whole piece again which we'd already agreed that we weren't going to do that to to the girls again so i really had no other i won't say i didn't have any other options but our best choice as a family was to go ahead and call today and, and move on to to the next chapter how difficult was it in making that decision? It really wasn't hard. I mean, no. again, I felt very fulfilled with with my career. I would say no regrets on 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 any of that. And I was very happy with where I was at. Mm. Yeah, I was I was very satisfied with with where I was in a career, all the way through. I mean, the only thing I would, I mean, it would have been nice to be a CMC at, yeah. at a team to kind of go back, but it wasn't for us at the time. It wasn't worth the the strife for the family for. For that little Benny, for myself, for my little ego, ego check. Right. Yeah. So I, I was fine with our decision as a family to say, okay, this, this is done. Were there were there moments for you in going through your career where you looked at your daughters and you just realized how much growth had happened, and it kind of shocked or startled you? Seeing in your family, were there moments in your career where you just didn't even realize how much, and then in a moment, you saw that. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, you come back from every single deployment. Now they're three or four months older, right? Yeah. And are more mature. I think really the biggest ones were once they hit their teenage years and started gaining that independence of now I don't need that every day. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm retired now. Let's let's be a family. And you know, they're teenage girls. They've got friends and activities and sports and everything else. So that like that reality check was, oh man, they really don't need don't need me as much. You know, being teenagers and young adults. But now I'm home all the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's uh yeah it's a it's a, I won't say slippery slope, but it's a, it's a hard path to, to walk sometimes to navigate. Yeah. How do you view yourself in that fatherly role? Like, has that been tough for you in, in being gone all that time? Oh, I was a perfect father, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think we did, you know, Alicia and I, I think we did as best we could with what we have. And yeah. you know, I've got two incredibly talented young ladies that are that are just killing it with whatever they do. And That's great. So I, I think we succeeded. I yeah. feel like we succeeded. Yeah. Even amongst the challenge of oh, all yeah, that I, time gone. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's and we awesome. still get them. I mean, they're teenagers, so they, they have little hiccups here and there. Yeah. And we keep them in reality, but they're they're both respectful enough and mature enough to to make the right decisions. Yeah, 
That's on, awesome. on the big stuff. So, yeah. yeah. So we talked about transition. We yep. talked about identity, loss of purpose, and all those things. Now I see you in all these incredible roles. Obviously, we're at this incredible ranch. Yes. Out yes. in West Texas. Sienega. Sienega. Yes. Beautiful spot. Uh, we're right in the room where uh, Mick Jagger has some old family reunions. Yeah, <laughs> and then which across, is crazy. Yeah, across from there, the room is you know Miranda Lambert. She stays there. Yeah, no big deal. No big yeah. deal. <laughs> yeah, these opportunities. I always tell guys, I'm like, I feel very fortunate in the role that I am. I don't feel like I deserve this. I don't feel like getting out of the military like I signed up for that mm-hmm. for any of the things that have come. But I tell people, you know, it is an incredible time to be a veteran. Because I really feel like we get experiences that only billionaires get sometimes. Like yeah. the, these kind of experiences, like out here, hanging out with the guys, what we experienced yesterday. That was an incredible day, yeah. You killing, a, <laughs> you know, Audad, taking it out. I said that right, didn't I? Yeah, Audad. 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 Yeah, something I'm like not that. the hunter. Um, no, but you take that shot. Hopefully by sunset you will be. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> you took that shot, uh, you know, from about 550, right? 550 yeah, yards. Yeah. And it was a great shot. And just before that, kind of describe the describe the scene, uh, so, what that was like leading up to that. Well, show. Yeah, I guess to take a step back. So the reason we're here is yes, please. Is well, if we're going to jump back to purpose, I guess we'll we'll reel back to purpose. So what I realized, like I lost that purpose of my nation, my teammates, the mm-hmm. mission that we were doing, and it took me a little while to figure out what my next purpose was. Like obviously the family's there, right. But she has got the family dialed to where it maybe requires 30, 40% of my, of my bandwidth. Mm-hmm. So what do I do with the rest of it? You know, I don't want to be an asshole. I don't want to be like hovering over her and everything else. So, this is a situation a lot of people absolutely. would want to be in, by and the abso- way. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. And, and this is what I kind of want to come back to is yeah. like, like, okay, now I've got to figure out where I fit. Like, right. Obviously, it's not nine to five. We talked about that. That's, that's not my personality or what I want to do. So I, I started laying it down. Like, what am I good at? What do I enjoy? I absolutely enjoy and love being a coach or a mentor. Hmm. Okay, so how can I do that? One, how can I do that and actually make a little bit of money, even though money's not the end-all, be-all, but it's a beneficial place for me to be. So begin, okay, so I can be beneficial to my community by mentoring and coaching, helping businesses. Hmm. Okay, check, got that. Coaching is one thing for youth athletes is good, but how do I give back to my veteran community, which is very important to me, you know, after as long as I was and, and being an E9, I know I say as a master chief, E9 is just a rank. Being a master chief, I knew I had something to give back. I've got a ton of experience, some knowledge, a little bit of wisdom to continue to help the veterans go through the situations they're going through, whether it's a E4 that's just coming in the Navy, somebody that drops out of buds, somebody that's getting ready to retire, somebody's dealing with strife. Like I can be a benefit to them. So, leading into what we're doing now is like I know by getting out veterans to the outdoors is therapeutic. It's absolutely therapeutic to me. Like every single deployment I would come back, I would go to the mountains for two weeks because when I didn't do that, I was not a good dad. I was not a good person. I did not have that time to decompress from work Terry to dad Terry to just the citizen Terry. So I knew that was a benefit. So I wanted to continue to do that so which like what we did last week little deer hunt camp bring some veterans in let them tell their stories and rebond mm-hmm. so i noticed being where i'm at in my hometown i get great people there but i don't have any special operations veterans that have experienced anything close to what 
what I've dealt with. So you can't have those conversations. You can't have that connection with guys. So by hosting these little get togethers like this, it's, it's a perfect opportunity to blend two things I love. It's like my veteran community, helping them, but also the outdoors, which I love doing. So this is why we're here. So Tim and I, prior to this, we were, we were trying to archer deer hunt, which didn't turn out too good, but we had a ton of laughs and had a lot of fun and connected with a lot of good people. And now we're out here to, to Sienega where I'm going to hope to run more of these type things. And then also teach people skill sets that they could use. So like long range course we were out there doing the other day, this is kind of what's leading into like the next chapter. Like how do I keep giving back? Mm-hmm. How do I benefit my community both on the military and the civilian side and still have fun doing it? And I, I see a real purpose in that, Terry. These are not like one-offs, you know, mm-hmm. and we talk about that problem in the veteran sphere. Yeah. Oh, I hate, there's nothing I hate worse than, yeah. Hey, here, come in and have a good time for a day, and then I'll never talk to you again. Yeah, and yeah. then you won't go sit on a couch and blow your brains out. Yeah, like, yeah, it's the same thing on the leadership. So I want to teach you leadership. Yeah, you can pay me a ton of money to come in and, and get you all hyped up for two hours, but there's no lasting benefit to that. Because in two weeks, you guys are going to forget that. You're still going to have the internal dialogue that doesn't work. You're going to have the communication systems that don't work, the structure that doesn't work. So if, if I'm going to get involved with something, whether it's like trying to help veterans or trying to help businesses or coaching kids – it's going to be a long-term lasting benefit to everybody. Cause I've only got so much time, you know, limited time because hell I'm 48 now. So it's, it's slowly ticking away and I can see that. So I want to make sure whatever I'm involved in is, is beneficial. How, how important is follow through in that role? It's absolutely. I mean, just follow through with everything, whether you're shooting a pistol, shooting a bow or mentoring somebody on, on skill sets that they don't have, like dealing with emotion, dealing with panic, dealing with stress. You have to follow through, right? I mean, it's, Otherwise, it's pointless. Why, why take your time to go do something if, if you're not going to follow through and make sure that, that that lesson is learned? Yeah. I remember sitting, we were sitting in that um, blind. <laughs> I've got to check my terms every time, Terry. Because yeah, I'll keep is you honest. No... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got, I have to. It just, it's just a thing. I don't yes. know the hunting world. I don't really understand it. I just knew that I had a lot of brothers who were involved in this, who'd served in my unit. And then once I got out, I saw how immersed the our, our sphere, especially mm-hmm. I, I think it started with World War II. Those guys yeah. really got yeah. into the hunting. Um, but now we see it here and we see how therapeutic it is, whether it's archery or with guns. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter. It is a hugely therapeutic movement, I yes. would say. Yes. So watching... Being in that blind with you during that time, yeah, I didn't shoot anything with the bow. <laughs> we probably laughed off. I think we scared everything we away scared by laughing. We scared everything yes. away. But that <laughs> time and getting to know you even mm-hmm. to where we could sit down now and feel completely yes. comfortable yes. was huge. It's massive. That is therapeutic. Mm-hmm. Being with brothers, being in that space, being together and being able to speak and just laugh. Have a great time. Yeah, exactly. No, no stress, no expectations of, of anything other than having a good time. So, so what's the continuation of this look like, and what do you want this to continue to become? So, well, what I'm going to – taking time, and I want to make sure we build it right, is build a space. I'm not, not a nonprofit. None of that crap that you got to deal with with being a nonprofit, which you know very well. It's a pain in the ass. Yeah. I want to have opportunities available to where we don't have to worry about nonprofits. We don't have to worry about anything else. If you got the time and the desire to get outside and learn new skills, experience something with your friends or, or relatives or fellow teammates or fellow veterans, we're going to have stuff set up for you. Mm. So what we're doing out here at, you know, at this place, you know, we got a full lodge. 
It's an incredible, awesome lodge. Beautiful. Yeah, it's yeah. They they call it the the bad side of the ranch, but it's it's fucking incredible. <laughs> anyway, so what we're gonna do is be able to set up. I don't. I'm not gonna say safe space because that sounds gay. <laughs> can I say that? Can I say that on there? You can yes. absolutely. You're, you're it an sounds it you sounds can, very yeah. very fruity, mm. but we're gonna have we create a space and environment where people can come in and ask questions, not have any ego in the way of, hey, I've never shot a rifle at a mile. I've never killed an animal. I've never cut up an animal. Like we're gonna eat, eat animals tonight that people think you you can't eat. So we're gonna prove disprove that fact on the outdoors of the full circle of, of everything we can do from the time you show up and start laughing until the time you go home four or five days later with something for the freezer and experience pictures, you know, hopefully something for the wall, but you know, you're going to carry that lasting memory of, of your experience here, being able to let go of some of those demons. Hopefully we can work through them. We're not a therapeutic event, but you know, let those, let those demons out by discussing them. Cause mm-hmm. I, Again, I've either myself or some other people here running this thing have probably experienced just about everything that's that's out there for other people to experience. So working through that, having those having those laughs and, and good times, but then also the network. So if we bring in ten veterans to do an event, they may or may not have ever met themselves before. We've got the, we've got the shared common bond, shared knowledge, shared experiences. So you can have those conversations with guys, but you may not have ever met them before. Now you're going to go home with nine more friends that you can call if you need to. Yeah. That's awesome. Is there a plan to make this, is this just going to be a veteran space that you no, it'll be a, it'll be regular on? civilian too. So yeah. we'll, we'll run civilian classes, same kind of thing. Come out. I, I love hearing that by the way, cause I really do think that's a bridge building item. Yeah. I really think that brings our communities better t- together. And I think mm-hmm. that is therapeutic. Absolutely. Yeah. But, and you know, besides the veteran specific ones, if we, if we run civilian ones, they can come and have that veteran experience, or I almost say that it sounds sounds like we're selling veterans, right? Like they come in, but, <laughs> see yeah, the exhibit. <laughs> yeah, veterans. come in, pet, your, pet the seal, Such a veteran. Yeah, tell them a joke. <laughs> but have that opportunity where where civilians can come in and experience a little bit of what military guys do, just like you, know, you alluded to before. We shot that out at last night, and as soon as we shot it, I mean, the whole experience was fun. We had five guys out there looking, guys with a bow trying to get one. These things blew up over the mountaintop. We were able to get a shot at five something. High winds, awesome shot. I felt great with it. But then, as soon as that happened, hailstorm opened up on us, right? So that, and I love it. I was, we were talking about last time climbing up the mountain and in a hail just getting pelted. But like that's that adversity, that that stuff that normal people are like, oh crap, it's hailing, it's raining. We better go back to the lodge and and wait, and we'll come back later. Like mm-hmm. hell no, I I thrive in those very rugged environments and rugged experiences because that's as close as I can get to what I did for three decades. Yeah. Like, like kicking my ass on in a mountain, chasing elk for 10 days and never getting a shot mm-hmm. sucks, but God, I love it. Yeah. I mean, like physically pushing myself into those positions where I have to, have to give myself a, a mental check. And because but, of, we've been so in this community and so immersed in it myself mm-hmm. and what I do yeah. is there's no question in my head of what we're going to do. We're yeah. going to climb that mountain. We're yeah. going to climb that hill. I looked around a little bit. I'm like, all right, these bushes aren't going to do anything <laughs> for us. So screw it. I'm going to keep on yeah. walking up there, right? I was just like, I hope these don't turn into golf balls. Yes. I mean, they were, thank, thank God they're about the size of a nickel or a dime, but yeah. they were still stung pretty good. Yeah, they did. Especially <laughs> when I got one right inside of your balls. Like, God damn. <laughs> <laughs> don't 
don't stick in there. Pop out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. That that seeing though that animal, and I just wanted to describe that as first time or being out here. Yeah. It's just beautiful. I there was nothing ugly about it. No. Watching the process, the respect shown to the animal. These animals die in nature in terrible ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't even fathom how it's, awful. And she is. was old. I mean, she probably only had another not very much longer left. Yeah. You know, she was at the end of her life. So from a conservation aspect, that's the perfect animal we want to go to. Yeah. yeah. And how important is that side of it, the conservation? To me, I mean, you do. And I don't know if it's because I'm older and a little more mature. I have, I get as much enjoyment out of going out and pursuing like her. So you, a, a female outdad for the guys that don't, or people that don't know what that is. So from a conservation aspect, the outdad, they, they breed twice a year. Hmm. So you have to manage them, otherwise they're just going to wreck the landscape. And this is a cattle operation, so they, they're trying to run cattle on here. So trying to manage the manage that herd, you have to take out a certain number of animals through hunters, right? I mean, that's just the most effective way. There's no predators out here. It's technically an invasive species from North Africa. It doesn't belong here. It was brought over here, and they're thriving in this environment because it's so close. Mm. But for me, from, like an, from an outdoorsman slash conservationist, I absolutely get more out of the bigger picture aspect of it than than trying to get the biggest horns or biggest antlers out there. Knowing that she was probably only 10 or 12 years old at the end of her life cycle, that's exactly the kind of animal that you want to be able to pull out of the herd. Instead of, I mean, yeah, we could have shot a big ram because they were there there too, but my goal is to, I guess, be enhanced. Yeah. I guess my goal is to make the place a better place than, than when I showed up. Yeah. Same goals when you were in. Yeah, yeah, essentially, yeah. I try to try try to make people better off than, than when they started, whether yeah. it's through training, whether it's through coaching, or just listening. How invaluable have these experiences been? And oh, I mean, watching guys just light up and in all that. Absolutely, just... that's kind of defined my purpose now. Like once I saw those first couple of times, like okay, perfect. This this is what drives me now. Like this is my tribe now. Like through meeting you through you know through the Winter Strong and Sordex experience. I have these conversations with Bert all the time. I was like, now I found my next tribe. Mm. It's a mix of veterans, a mix of just good people doing the right thing. Yeah. And I can I can affect a positive change in that and be a, a positive part of that tribe. Right. And you can affect the next line of thinkers and people that are getting out into the community as well. I hope well. so. I yeah. hope so, yeah. I know you can because I've seen it up, front, up close, and it's what I see here. Uh, talk about that shot. <laughs> Because that well, was a great it, shot. It was well, a really good shot. And here's the like the funny thing, like when we talked before, like I felt like an asshole this morning or yesterday morning on range because I couldn't hit a steel target at 500 <laughs> yards. I ranged her at 525 or where she was, and as I'm dialing up my scope to that range, in my back of my head is like, this is the range I could not hit anything at four hours ago. Yeah. And now, now I've got a live animal at that range. I have confidence in my weapon system because I, I did figure out what was going on and we and we, we got this got it figured out. But yeah, in the back of my head, I'm like, oh my god, this is this is a shot I couldn't make before. And now here she is, a live animal, winds blowing, we're at fifteen to twenty mile an hour, fifteen to twenty mile an hour winds whipping down through the valley. She's moving, she's getting ready to crest the ridge in a terrible body position. I'm kinda of laying downhill on a bunch of rocks. It prop, was not comfortable. Propped up. Yeah. So my my gun's angled up. My feet are head up above my head. But just kind of getting into that zen, that zone of, okay, another range. I see her. I know what the wind's doing. And I just kind of quick. Everything calmed down. 
like I flipped that switch into knowing what I got to do to get the job done in a very respectful way. Cause I, the last thing I want to do is injure her. Right. I'd rather miss her outright, but no one we're going to take the shot because she's in range and the conditions are, are good enough to, to do this. And it felt so once I let, once I squeezed through that and a trigger broke, I knew it was a good shot before I even saw anything else. Mm-hmm. Like that's a great shot. And then, you know, she dropped where she was supposed to be and, then, yeah, it was very satisfying for yeah. for me. Yeah, us too. Me yeah, too. that not even ex- the whole experience. So yeah, you were yeah. there for your first, probably your first animal kill. Yeah, right. First ever. So the first first kill on an animal. He's there. Aaron's right next to me. A friend of ours. He runs this place now and, and helping setting us up and invited us out to do this experience. And is doing an incredible job. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh. They're, they're just killing it here. So yeah, the, just including that into the. The group aspect, you know, we, we had Brady and Mike with us too, and like that sharing that experience with everybody is, is and that's what I love about this standing around there, bumping fists, yeah, bumping fist, yeah, bump nice fist shot. talking, and yeah, yeah. and then like that, then adding that layer onto the struggle of getting to it, like just getting pelted for an hour with 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 hail. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I didn't bring the. Ma- I would like to pretend that I brought the animal down the side of the hill, but I did not. But you took some good pictures. I took. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> the adversity of that experience is a real yeah. thing. You, but know? you were still. I mean, you were still just as cold, just as wet as I was. Sucks. Yeah, it yeah. sucks, but it's it's it doesn't suck. I love it. That's yeah. why I suck. I, mean, I love the suck. Yeah. You yeah. know, you're going to get back, you're going to get a hot shower. Oh, tell stories, grab tell a beer. Stories. And yeah. Like, Man, this is so cool. And tell them, yeah, I can't wait to see the pictures because from a, like, artistic standpoint, or mm-hmm. artistic standpoint, they're going to be great. But from, like, a photographer standpoint, they're probably going to suck, right? Because everything's going to be out of focus and yeah. wet. There's raindrops on everything. But for me personally, it's like, that added layer to the to the experience, you can't, I mean, you could never pay to do that. No, no. Like, you said that to me several yeah. times as I was sitting there. You're yeah. Like, you can, you, there is no paying for this. Yeah, it's, it's priceless. I'm just all of that combined into one, one day, one experience was, that made my week. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, I, I totally get that. So you, you talked a little bit about the leadership side, yeah. consulting and that. And can you, can you talk a little bit about that and what you do and how much your time in the Navy, 26 years, mm-hmm. I mean, an incredible career. What most people would dream dream of in your career in the Navy and you get out as a master chief. What, how much did that help you in the role that you're in now in leadership and consulting? Well, a lot. I mean, a, a ton. Be, like I, was, I don't know if I was telling you or somebody else, but like the Navy, or at least in, in the SEAL teams, we were not very good at developing leaders. Like when I came in the 90s, early 90s, it was luck of the draw. Who was going to be your LPO? Who was going to be your chief? If you had good ones or bad ones, they developed you as, as that leader coming right. up. So if you had good ones, fucking awesome, right? If you had bad ones, well, too bad to be you or, you know, sucks to be you. But if you get bad ones and you're a young guy, and you don't know they're bad leaders, mm. you're developing bad habits right off the bat, not right. even knowing it better. So, yeah, so seeing that and understanding that, and then it wasn't until the early 2000s we started kind of really building a leadership program. And, like, the first leadership course I went to, I don't even know what it was, probably mid-2000s or something, I was like, holy shit, I have been a goddamn terrible leader. <laughs> like, like, no empathy towards anybody, no accountability towards anybody. The, that all this stuff that goes into being a good leader, like not treating people like I want to be treated, like, like goddamn, <laughs> like I'm an asshole, right? So Terry it was, it was an a, honest Navy SEAL. Yeah, but it was <laughs> it was an eye opener for me. Was, yeah. And then I, 
I started overlaying that onto the leaders I've had, like the good ones and the bad ones. And like, oh, this is why I like that guy. And this is why I would follow that guy anywhere. Mm. Or this is why, hey, that guy knows his job, but he's a fucking terrible people person. It's like, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Like, no matter what, I'm never going to be like that kind of guy. Mm. So it was it was eye opening for me and then kind of develop into kind of my own person. Like, I'm going to treat everybody with respect, right? Because you never know when, when you're going to, when that is going to come full circle. And I, I teach this to, or I, I was teaching this to my new students. I'm like, you never know, like the kid you were in boot camp with, you may run into him 20 years later on a ship somewhere and you need his help. Mm. So if you're an asshole now because you think you're fucking special because you're in the Bud's pipeline, you're burning bridges. Yeah. And we talked about this. So like, it takes 10 times as long as to burn or to build the bridges as is, as to, to burn them. So, and it probably goes back to my raising in the childhood. I always wanted to treat everybody with absolute respect and treat them like a real person, no matter what their job is, no matter what their role is, because I want them the same thing, right? I want them to treat me the same way. I'd rather have a good, honest conversation with somebody than just yell at them like, ah, just go do this because I told you to fucking do it. Right. And there's times to just tell the guys like, hey, shut up and fucking row the boat. We'll get to the, we'll get to the details later on, but just do this right now, right? There's those times, but most of the time you got time to communicate what the actual job is or what the requirement is or what you're expecting out of them. So having those conversations and, and communication, like even today, I'm terrible at communications, even though I know it is probably one of the biggest factor in success or failure in, in business and military and everything else. Like, what is your communication pipeline? How do you do it? How effective are you at it? And I still struggle sometimes. Mm. Yeah. Are you, and you're involved in the Hunter Recruitment Project as well? Are you I've helped in it. Yeah. I've helped with it, yeah, and I definitely want to help more. But, yeah, what Jamie and HRP's got going on is incredible. Just getting new people into the outdoors. Yeah, how important is that? That's why I brought that up. Yeah. It, wh- wh- how important that is it's that? It's very satisfying. And to me, if, if you get kind of in the life cycle of a hunter, it's like new hunter experience a little bit. Then you're trying to go to you know, shoot bigger animals, more complex situations. I think I've kind of come full circle to where I'm. I get more enjoyment out of bringing people into the outdoors that have never been there, especially into the hunting community. Like, well, shit in Dallas, I don't think I ever picked up picked up my bow. I was supposed to be there for a bow hunt, but I spent my time between you and and Robert and, and getting just getting more people in the outdoors to share that one because I just love love the outdoors myself. I love sharing those experiences with new people, but also knowing in the long term, as the U.S. population grows and our hunter number percentages decrease potential to lose that that right to be the outdoors and right to go hunt animals is very real mm-hmm. so i want to make sure that one i'm recruiting more people into the outdoors but also recruiting them and teaching them the proper way of doing it yeah the respectful way of doing it just like you know we're doing out here yes we shot some animals but we are taking animals that people would normally just shoot and take pictures of mm-hmm. because they're quote unedible and now we're going to do a cookout and show people how you can actually eat these animals they are edible every single animal is edible yeah some taste better than others obviously but there's no reason to waste yeah waste game and a lot about it's a lot about it is the preparation right yeah absolutely if if you if you take care of the meat prep it and treat it with respect it's going to be better why are we losing hunters terry what is it is it the culture is it the landscape is it i think it's, it's probably a little bit of everything one one is life's easy. So mm-hmm. in the old days when people had to go out and hunt to feed the family, literally, you're losing that. You know, life is life is very easy. But also, you know, we're kind of getting bombarded with 
the anti, I don't say anti hunting, but getting bombarded with the message that killing animals is, is mean, is wrong, right? Right. You don't need to do this. And if you look at all the Disney movies and the Bambies and all this kind of stuff, our children from day one are being led to believe that we don't need to we don't need to kill animals to eat. And we don't need to kill animals to manage them. Like the US or humankind has to manage we've affected the landscape. So even out here in West Texas, you know, 200 years ago, there was probably nobody out here besides the Indians running around. Now it's inhabited. Now it's people out here. Now we've got species that don't belong out here. So we have to conserve them. And, and, and the proper way of conservation is through hunting. And it gives back. It gives back to everything. So to get back to your point of why we're losing them, I think we're losing probably as a percentage of, of the population because the population is growing. Yeah. And we're not recruiting new people. So. Even we may still have the same number of hunters, but it's, we're a smaller percentage every single year, and we're aging up. Right. So it's, it's so important to, to bring more people in, teach them the fundamentals, the respect, why we're doing it, and all the benefits. Not just hell, I mean, just the benefits of eating pure organic meat that's never been touched by a person. Yeah. You know, you walk into the store and like, oh, here's meat. I'm like, yeah, but somebody had to kill that, right? Yeah. So we're talking about the anti-hunters and everything. I was like, unless you're a strict vegan you somewhere along the lines an animal has died to feed you mm. so to bring people closer to that process of what goes into it and why it's there and why it's important is huge i think i mean there is a it seems like there's a bigger movement now of being in tune with where your food comes from yes and that's probably a good reason for the big influx of, of newer hunters into the into the outdoors especially after covid right like now we have supply chain issues yeah. We can't get some of the food we thought we could get. We can't get some of the supplies we thought we could get. So a lot of people had a wake-up call of, I better learn how to have a garden if I have a space for a garden. Or I better learn how to put meat in the freezer and feed my family, or whether it's fish or meat or chickens or whatever it's going to be, to feed my family because you don't know what's really going to happen next. No. You have yeah. no clue. That's important. Now, Terry, I want to know, you're, you're obviously, you've had an incredible career. Now you're doing some awesome things on the other side of that career. And I think it's important, you know, a, a lot of guys get stuck in this cycle. I've talked about this with so many mm -hmm. people, but thinking their best days are behind them. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't believe that. I don't oh, care no. how great your career was. Yeah. How do you see that? How do you see, your, your best days surely aren't behind you. You've surely got things to look forward to. And Oh, absolutely. I mean, I guess you Kind of depends on how you classify, right? Like, yes, my military days are behind me, but that's fine. I, mm. That's all. Like, I knew when I signed up at 18 that you're not going to be in until you're 100, right? That's just not going to – it's not how it works, right? <clears throat> so knowing knowing that, hey, that's over, that's fine. I don't have to cling on to to that. Yes, I. it's a validation, right, when I'm teaching leadership or whatever it's going to be. That's validates, but I'm not a soldier anymore. I'm not in the military anymore. I'm not – quote, I'm, yes, I'm a SEAL, retired, mm -hmm. and it's always – I'm always going to be a SEAL, but – I'm not out carrying the guns or doing this stuff. So being able to accept that and know what's going to happen and then plugging into what my new purpose is by helping veterans and teaching, teaching stuff that I, that I know is that's the next chapter, right? Yeah. Like I know, I know my book has lots of chapters left Yeah. before you can get into the family and grandkids and all that other stuff that I can't wait for. It's like, Hey, I've got Tim. Tim's another chapter, right? Mm -hmm. Another friendship, another experience. You know, my, and Mike in here and, and Brady and Aaron, like it's important for me to keep expanding those chapters and meeting new people and, and seeing where this book goes to because there's storylines all over the place. Yeah, you know, like our storyline with with helping with this and hopefully some helping some veterans is, is a whole other piece of the piece of the pie that I never even thought 
never even thought about six months ago. Totally. Yeah. And this ranch out here, like that's a whole nother, you know, we were talking about this morning, right? There's a whole nother chapter here to where we as a society and as a, as a group or a community can benefit other people. Yeah. It's like, man, okay, here we go. What's next over here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How how do you want in that last chapter? You know, how do you want to how do you want to be viewed, and how how do you want your kids and grandkids to look at you? Oh and, damn! In what? <laughs> That's a tough one. Yeah. Uh, we talk about this aspect of legacy all the time in this project, but what what do you see your legacy as? I would hope my legacy is is he was a good person. Yeah, he helped others and he cared. Yeah, I think a lot of people are going to see that Terry for sure. <laughs> I appreciate you got me, you got me, got me kind of. Choking up a little bit. Damn. Well, Thinking I, about mortality, damn it. <laughs> damn you, I just said I had a whole bunch of chapters left, and you fucking throw that at me. I'm, uh, I'm, just, I'm just appreciative of you and all yeah. that you've done for this nation. Well, dude, I'm, I'm super stoked that, one, you accepted my invite to go mm-hmm. to go deer hunting, which led into us sitting in this 200-year-old, incredibly awesome fucking room <laughs> and having a, having a really genuine, good conversation that, you know, if, if it ever airs, hopefully it helps somebody. Yeah. yeah. Listen, Joe Rogan podcast studio, eat your heart out. This room's way better. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, you may have you may have some gorillas and some cool shit, but yeah, yeah, you're not you're not matching this. Not one. matching this one. Yeah. Terry, it's been great to have you on. I awesome. really appreciate you. I appreciate you. it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And for those of you listening out there, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. And most of all, don't forget our legacies are the mission. This has been the Veterans Project Podcast with our founder, Tim Kay. Check us out at www.thevetsproject.com, on Instagram, at The Veterans Project, Facebook, The Veterans Project, and Twitter, at Project underscore Veteran. Thanks for listening, and don't forget, our legacies are the mission.